I'd invite you this morning to open up with me to Genesis chapter 4. We came through chapter 3 last week, and we saw the fall of man. Split that up into a couple of Sundays, but we, we've come now to, as Jordan just mentioned, the story of the first family. And really, it's remarkable all of the things that we can pull out of this chapter. But there is something that I wanted to go back and talk about before we get into chapter 4. But even before that, I want to share with you this thought. The only certain barrier to truth is the presumption that you already have it. The only certain barrier to truth is the presumption that you already have it. And this is especially true for these very familiar passages of the Bible. As we approach a passage that we've heard over and over, you probably were taught this story in Sunday school when you were growing up. And so it's hard for us to approach the text detached from our presuppositions, although we should try. So that's what we're going to try to do this morning. We're going to take the text for what it says, and we will venture into it. Now, before getting into chapter 4 too much, I do want to revisit the last verse of chapter 3. And as I was looking back over my notes this week and I was listening to some things, I came across a slightly different view of verse 24 in chapter 3 that I found intriguing. And I wanted to share that with you this morning. It really doesn't change the thrust of the passage. It doesn't change our application of it. And you can do with this what you will, but I think it is worth noting. So the ancient Hebrew scholars viewed these cherubim not as guarding the tree of life from Adam and Eve, but from Satan and his angels. Okay, so verse 24, chapter 3 says, So he drove out the man, and he placed cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden, and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So these ancient Hebrew scholars viewed these cherubim not as guarding the tree of life from Adam and Eve, but from Satan and his angels. The King James Version says it translated to keep the way of the tree of life. And translating that as keep instead of guard seems to bolster this point of view. It does seem unusual, I will admit, that God would use cherubim to guard the tree of life from Adam and Eve, mere humans, right? That that seems strange to me because we know that back in, where was it? Second Kings 19, one angel, not even a cherubim, which is a high ranking angel, but a regular old angel ended up killing 185,000 Assyrian soldiers in one night. So human is no match for an angel of any rank or sort. But God uses these high-ranking angels, these cherubim, to guard the way to the tree of life. It does make it seem like they're not guarding against Adam and Eve coming in there and sneaking a bite of fruit. So, according to these ancient Hebrew scholars, God wasn't keeping the tree from Adam and Eve, but for Adam and Eve. He was guarding it or keeping it, safeguarding. Of course, He didn't want them to eat it in their fallen state, as it says in verse 22, and as we mentioned last week. But he also didn't need the cherubim to guard it if that was all that there was to it. So it seems that God probably put these guarding cherubim in place to keep Satan from it and to preserve that tree of life for Adam and Eve to eat of in their eternal state. And for all of us who have inherited eternal life, we are to eat of that tree in our eternal state in the New Jerusalem. So this view doesn't seem to be challenged, as far as I can tell, by any New Testament authors, and it does make logical sense to me. So you can decide what you want to do with that, but we'll move into chapter four now. And I want you to remember that Adam and Eve were just driven out of the garden, And they were driven out into this world that was still reeling from that recent pain of the curse. 
when God brought down the curse upon the world. And with no other humans on the earth, they would have had to really rely on each other in a way that really no married couple has had to rely on each other since. And they would have to learn to work with each other, as we all do when we get married. You know, there's that, that change. And when you just move in with each other, it's like she wants to worry about different things than I want to worry about. And we've got different schedules. She wants to stay up late. I want to go to bed early. And you got to learn how to work with each other. And Adam and Eve here would have had to go through that, I'm sure. And in their fallen state, we know that this struggle for headship in the marriage relationship ensues. But they had learned something before they were booted from the garden that would prove to be a most important revelation from God. They learned what it meant to cover their sins. They learned that if they were going to fellowship with God, which used to be this baseline experience in the garden, before they were kicked out, God would walk with them in the cool of the day. Every day he'd come down and fellowship with them. What used to be a baseline experience has turned into something that needed an innocent substitute for them to partake in. God rejected their coverings of fig leaves, and he showed them that it took the death of an innocent animal to adequately cover themselves. It says back in verse 21 of chapter 3, also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. Those fig leaves that they had made from their own sweat, they weren't good enough. They needed something of atonement to cover themselves. It seems that they observed and listened as God instructed them in this way, which they were to offer the sacrifice to him in faith. And as their sins were temporarily covered, he would commune with them. He could fellowship with them. And so after the passing of an unknown but apparently short period of time, chapter 4 opens. So please read with me, if you will, through verse 15 of chapter 4. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. Then she bore again, this time his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of the sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. So the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door, and its desire is for you, but you shall rule over it. Now Cain talked with Abel his brother, and it came to pass, when they were in the field, that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And he said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. So now you are cursed from the earth, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you till the ground, it shall no longer yield its strength to you. A fugitive and a vagabond you shall be on the earth. And Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Surely you have driven me out this day from the face of the ground. I shall be hidden from your face. I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond on the earth. And it will happen that anyone who finds me will kill me. And the Lord said to him, Therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord set a mark on Cain, lest anyone finding him should kill him. The story of the first family. What a happy picture we have 
right? You know, these are fallen people just like we are. They're sinful. And that sin nature we see creeping in. Chapter 4 opens with this term, now Adam knew Eve, his wife. That would become familiar biblical euphemism for marital intimacy. You know, and we sometimes use that. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain. And she said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. Eve was certainly thankful that God would provide her with this precious child. And not only was she thankful for this child, she was thankful that it was a man. She says, I've acquired a man from the Lord. That's an interesting choice of words, isn't it? Because he was not yet a man. He was a kid. He was a baby, a little boy. Her use of this word man, which is ish that we've seen before, speaks to her own faith. She did not, in fact, have a man at this time, but a baby boy. But her faith allowed her to treat those future things as if they were present. Right? That's what faith does. She believed that God had gifted her with a man, trusting that he would allow Cain to reach maturity and to become a man. Now, Cain's name literally means acquired or gotten. I've acquired a man from the Lord. And we see this pattern through the scripture, especially the Old Testament. You have names of people given to them based on events or big milestones in either the culture, their own lives, or their kids' lives. So it's, it's interesting. Acquired is Cain's name. And more than likely, Eve thought, you know, at least at the beginning of Cain's life, that he might have been that deliverer that God promised back in chapter 3, verse 15. That seed of the woman that was promised. And certainly Jewish women throughout history have always really sought that unique role of bringing Messiah into the world. You know, that's something that they all looked for. But soon Eve would realize that this little Cain was not that promised one. Now, I don't, maybe he got into his terrible twos when she realized, crying every night and throwing big fits. I don't know. But I'm sure she kind of took a step back and said, man, this is not what I expected. God, I, I don't think this is Messiah. In fact... In his first epistle, John writes that Cain was of the wicked one. That's quite a 180 from what I'm sure Eve was expecting. That's 1 John 3.12, that Cain was of the wicked one. That Greek word translated of is ek. It means out of or out from among or out of as a source. So not only was Cain not the promised redeemer, he was actually the first in a long line of this spiritual seed of the serpent. And in this fratricide that we see, the murder of Cain's brother, the seed of the serpent was quickly striking at the seed of the woman, trying to wipe out the possibility that that line of the seed of the woman would continue. This is one of Satan's first attacks on the seed of the woman. It's the first blow, trying to just completely wipe out the woman's progeny and prevent that fulfillment of God's promise. Now, you see here that the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, of course, have a literal and physical fulfillment in Jesus Christ and Antichrist, but there's also this spiritual layer to this prophecy. There's a spiritual aspect to these two lines. And in Matthew 3, 7, John the Baptist calls the Pharisees and Sadducees a brood of vipers. He is, in effect, calling them deadly sons of serpents. And I feel that that's probably hearkening back to 
Genesis 3.15. And Jesus repeats that same phrase to them in Matthew 12.34. These men would soon after that accuse and condemn Christ to death on the cross. The spiritual seed of the serpent had done exactly what their father, the wicked one, had intended for them. Verse 2, then she bore again, this time his brother Abel. And Abel's name means vanity. So the first one, she's super excited that she's acquired a man from God. The second one, this is vanity. And she names him vanity. And it seems by this point, Eve thoroughly realized the impact of God's curse on the world. God had indeed subjected his creation to futility, as Paul would say in Romans 8.20. And just because there's no mention of a second conception does not mean that these two brothers were twins. We see some people think that. um, I don't see any biblical backing for it. However, I would feel comfortable saying that these two brothers had more in common with each other than any pair of identical twins we see today. Consider how limited the gene pool was at this point. Adam and Eve shared genetic material. Eve was literally taken from Adam. They weren't born. They were both created in that sense. Cain and Abel were the first humans to be born. And so... The genetics of Cain and Abel were extremely pure, extremely undefiled, unmutated. You know, today we carry a lot of mutations. We tend to think of these brothers as like Cain being the bad guy and Abel being the good guy. And it's natural to think that, but there's just one problem. They were both sinners. They were both just men. And yes, Abel followed the prescription that God gave. And Abel came to God in the correct way, and Cain did not. But they were both sinners. They both had to offer sacrifices to God. They were both born outside of paradise, both born to sinful parents. And they were more alike than any brothers today. And I would say more alike than any identical twins today. And I want you to really think about this. This is an important point to gather here. Cain and Abel were free from many of the modern influences that kids deal with today. They didn't have TV programs and movies you know, skewing their views of what the family should look like, what, who God is, none of that. They didn't have abundant and free access to pornography like kids do today. They didn't have that influence. They didn't have the cool kids at school trying to get them to try stuff, you know? The only people on the earth were their parents and each other, their brothers. Abel wasn't homeschooled and Cain wasn't public schooled, okay? None of that. They knew about God only from what their parents told them. The age-old question is nature or nurture. Which one influences how your child grows up? And to what extent does each aspect, nature and nurture, influence their development? a good question. But please pay attention to this. These two brothers were born with near identical genetics and grew up in the same environment. Yet, one sought after God and one fled from God. They each made a choice. And everyone knows a family where you see this. And it may even be your family where one of the kids seems to be following after the Lord, just really on fire. And the other kid is 
way off in no man's land, doing whatever they want, you know, following any wind of doctrine and doing whatever they feel is right. And unfortunately, we see that very often. And a lot of times there was no significant difference in parenting style or environment growing up. But the paths of those two kids will diverge. And it's sad to watch. And if you think that I'm describing your kids right now, please listen. You're not responsible for their decision to run from God. Yes, you do have a responsibility to train them up in the way they should go. And if you've brought them up in a Christian household and you, you and your wife love Jesus, then that should take care of that. Now, there is diligence there that has to be, be done, but you can't force them to seek God. There's a choice that each of us individually have to make. Yes, you should sheriff your household well. That's one of the requirements of pastors in 1 Timothy 3. But past a certain point, they really do choose their own path. And here's where these two brothers started to diverge. It says, Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And I want to mention that this is not said to be negative on Cain's part. God had actually instructed Adam to work the ground, to get his living out of it. So just the fact that Cain is a farmer is no negative mark on him. He's just doing what he knows to do. But it's interesting that Abel was a shepherd, even from way back in this very, very early stage of humanity. Humans wouldn't get the green light from God to eat meat until after the flood, right? So what is Abel doing raising sheep? Why is he shepherding? I'm sure that they would use the wool to fashion their clothing, probably. I think that's a safe assumption. So they were useful in that regard. But could they also be keeping sheep to use as sacrifices to God? I think it's more than likely. And I want to be clear that the text doesn't actually say God used a sheep to clothe Adam and Eve in the garden. It doesn't specify what animal, but it does say that he clothed them with tunics of skin. But once Abel has grown, we see him keeping sheep and offering the firstborn of his flocks to God. This makes me think that God showed Adam and Eve exactly how they were supposed to fellowship with him after they fell, after their sin. They had to come to him with the blood of an innocent substitute. That first picture of substitutionary atonement. And they would have no doubt had this hard conversation with their kids. Boys, when your father and I broke God's command, something unimaginable happened. We were driven out of the most beautiful place, but God told us how we could come back to him. And all we wanted to, was to be back in his presence. That was our safe space. And that's why your dad takes a lamb and you see him come back with blood on his hands. That's why. Because we want to fellowship with God. It's the only way we can approach God now, and this is how you'll have to do it too. You know, I'm sure they had that hard conversation with their boys. They instructed their boys in how to offer this sacrifice to God. And both of the boys grew up. Pay attention. Both of the boys grew up with the knowledge of how to come to God correctly. Verse 3, and in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. One day, seemingly after 
many years, possibly, of offering the firstborn of the lambs, many years of offering these acceptable sacrifices, Cain decides to try coming to God his own way. Not by an innocent substitute, but by the work of his hands, the tilling of the ground. Since it does sound like both of the brothers had made acceptable offerings in the past, it makes us wonder if Cain had to barter with Abel for sheep. You know, I'll give you some of my fruits and veggies if you'll give me a sheep so I can come to God, sacrifice it, and use it. It makes you wonder, did Cain start to resent that dependence on his brother to come to God? Is that what started to fester in him? And is that what led to him deviating from this acceptable offering? Becoming increasingly bitter at Abel and wanting to come to God by his own strength, not depending on Abel who had the lambs. I hope you can see the typology forming here. There are many parallels that you can draw between Abel and Jesus Christ. And I'm not going to list all of them in this passage for you, but it'd be fruitful for you to seek those out for yourself. There's at least 35. Okay, So so look at it and see if you can pick those out. Cain was dependent on Abel for the sacrifice. And look at this. In Luke 11, 50 and 51, you don't have to turn, Jesus calls Abel a prophet, that the blood of all the prophets which was shed from the foundation of the world may be required of this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah who perished between the altar and the temple. Jesus calls Abel a prophet. And Revelation 19.10 tells us that the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So being a prophet, Abel bore the testimony of Jesus. And even after his death, Abel's blood cried out. And his blood is compared to the superior blood of Christ in Hebrews 12.24. To Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling, that is the blood of Jesus, that speaks better things than that of Abel, than the blood of Abel. Now, there's a phrase in this verse, in in verse 3, that really sticks out. It should sound familiar to you if you're acquainted with the Levitical sacrifices. Let's read it again, see if you can pick it out. In the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. I'm sorry, the phrase is in verse 4. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. It's right there in that sentence. Of their fat. That's interesting. How did he know to specifically offer the fat of the lamb? Several of the animal sacrifices prescribed in the law contained special instructions about offering the fat of the animals. And several of them included a prohibition against eating the fat of the animals. How did Abel know to offer specifically the fat of his lamb to the Lord? Was that one of the stipulations that God gave them? God gave Adam and Eve in the garden. Maybe. And at the beginning of verse 3, it says, And in the process of time, it came to pass. Literally translated, this says, at the end of days, it came to pass. What a strange phrase. We're not really sure exactly what this means. Was it talking about the end of the week? So at the end of the work days? God rested on the seventh day, and Adam and Eve were familiar with that pattern of rest. Was it on the seventh day that the brothers went to offer their sacrifices? 
At the end of days, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering. There's no law concerning the Sabbath at this point. That wouldn't come until many, many years after. But there does seem to be a prescribed time and a prescribed process by which these offerings were to be made. It also says that they brought their offerings, which sounds like they picked them up and they carried them to a prescribed place. Where did they have to go to offer these offerings? We're not sure. There is an ancient Jewish tradition, and no biblical basis for this, but the ancient Jews thought that they took their sacrifices to that gate to the Garden of Eden, where God set the cherubim. And you can see a parallel between that and the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant with the the wings of the cherubim covering the mercy seat where they would offer the blood. So that's an interesting thought. Again, no biblical basis for that, just a tradition. They carried their offerings to this prescribed place. Where it was, we're not sure. Here's something else for you to chew on, and we'll get to this in a few weeks. But when Noah was commanded to load the animals onto the ark, he was to take two of each of the unclean animals and seven of each of the clean animals. Clean and unclean are ceremonial definitions given in the law. This was way before the law. How did Noah tell the difference between a clean and an unclean animal? Consider, how could that be? Verse 4, Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. Respect, in this sense, roughly means acknowledged. God acknowledged Abel and his offering. It seems that there's some kind of detachment between Abel and what he was bringing to offer. And there certainly is some detachment there. When a sacrifice was made under the law, the lamb, or what they were bringing to sacrifice, would be inspected. And if it had any defect whatsoever on it, it was not acceptable to be sacrificed. So the offering was inspected. The one bringing the offering was never inspected. Because the simple fact of them bringing an offering to sacrifice meant that they knew they had a defect. And that offering was there to cover their sinfulness, their defect. Hebrews 11.4 says that Abel was righteous. But that doesn't mean that he was sinless. Both of these brothers had sinned. And Abel, by faith, offered this acceptable sacrifice to God. God respects Abel not because he didn't sin, but because he had acknowledged his sinfulness. God, I have sinned, and so I'm bringing this offering to you. He acknowledged his sinfulness, and he accepts that he has no right to come before a holy God, except by the means which God has prescribed, through the blood of an innocent substitute. And he had faith that if he approached God in this way, that he would be accepted. That's that aspect of faith that we see talked about in the New Testament. But Cain approaches God the way he wants to, not the way that was prescribed. He brought his offering to the same place on the same day, just as he had done before. But he didn't present an innocent substitute. He presented the work of his hands. I'm doing this my own way. I work hard and I'm religious. You mean to tell me that there's only one way to God? That's so closed-minded. I'm sure it was something like that. We shouldn't be amazed that there's only one way. We should be amazed that there is a way that we can come to God. That God loved us enough to provide a way to him through his son. 
That's remarkable. And the ways of these two brothers are the fountainheads of all the more modern ways that people try to reconnect with God. If it's not through Jesus, our innocent substitute, it's an attempt in vain. Jude 11 speaks of the way of Cain. Jude is writing concerning those false teachers that were prevalent in the very early church. He says, Woe to them, the false teachers, for they have gone in the way of Cain, have run greedily in the error of Balaam for profit, and perished in the rebellion of Korah. The way of Cain is simply trying to go to God in your own way. And we see that even with false teachers today. They're preaching all these different ways that you can come to God, except through Jesus. Of course, the spirit of these false teachers is not the Holy Spirit. They are not preaching the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They're telling you to come to God in other ways, and it's all vanity. It doesn't work. You can't tithe your way into heaven. You can't give to the poor to get into heaven, or sit in a pew, or even preach your way into heaven. Just can't do it. None of those things are bad things, but they are not sufficient for your salvation. If you're doing those things, among other good things, but don't have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, you're wasting your time. First things first, come to Christ. You must ask Christ to forgive your sins, be the Lord of your life, and apply his blood to your account. That has to be done first before anything else. Then you can do all of the things that come with that faith in Christ. But all those things that you do, giving to the poor, giving to the church, coming to church, even preaching, those things that we do is not for our salvation, but from our salvation. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And it says that Cain was very angry and his countenance fell. In the original language, that would read like Cain was smoldering with anger. He was stewing within himself because God did not accept him or his offering. So the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? Don't you know that if you come to me correctly, I'll accept you? The Septuagint says, if you offer correctly, I will accept you. The stipulations are the same for you and your brother. All you have to do is obey me in faith. If you don't If you do well, won't you be accepted, just like your brother? Of course. And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door, and its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. This is the first use of the word sin in Scripture. Sin lies at the door. And we touched on this phrase last week, when I mentioned that this was the same phrase used in Genesis 3.16, the idea is that sin is crouching at your door, waiting for the opportunity to take control. But the challenge here is, you shall rule over it. Don't give it an inch because it will take a mile. But Cain rejects God's invitation to do what he knows is right, and instead continues in his own way, the way of Cain. Now, Cain talked with Abel, his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. 
We're not sure how much time elapses between the ending of verse 7 and the beginning of verse 8. But Cain and Abel had a conversation with each other. Because of the context and what must have been some contention between the brothers concerning their sacrifices, I would imagine that they were talking about Cain's sacrifice and God rejecting it. And Abel, being the prophet, was probably telling Cain the truth. And Cain didn't want to hear it. Now, you know you'll be accepted if you just come to him as he's instructed. That's all you have to do. It's easy. It's simple. But your pride is getting in the way. But Cain is stubborn and continues stewing in his anger. You've talked to people before just like this. You probably know somebody who's been going to church their whole life, who always puts something in the offering pail, the offering box, who thinks, yeah, I'm a good person. I've been going to church. I'm going to heaven. You know, I, I deserve it. I mean, come on. I give 10% every week and do all of the things, check all the boxes. And you just sigh and you tell them, man, you got to know Jesus. All the stuff doesn't matter until you come to Christ. And you get pushback for that. You're telling me all I have to do is accept Jesus into my heart? That's all I have to do. And I'll spend an eternity with him. Yeah, that's it. You know, if you do well, you'll be accepted. If you come to him in the way that's laid out in his scripture, he'll accept you. And it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. What a tragedy for humanity. This is the first murder, the first human blood that was spilled. Tragic. And there's something interesting. The Masoretic text doesn't include this, but other ancient versions do like the Samaritan, the Septuagint, and others, there's an indication that while talking to Abel, Cain drew him out into the field to continue the conversation and to give him a chance to kill him without being restrained by others. Interesting. A bit of premeditation, it seems. Regardless of the specifics, it's clear that the first entrance of sin into the world had now brought forth much more bitter fruit and caused great pain for both Adam and Eve and the loss of their son. 1 John 3.12 mentions this act of Cain. And starting in verse 11, 1 John 3.11, it says, For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of the wicked one, we referenced that earlier, and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brother's righteous. You know, that spells out the reason, first of all, for Cain's murder. His works were evil and Abel's were righteous. But I want to point your attention to that word murdered. When John writes about this murder, he uses the Greek word sphazo. And the Greek language, especially this Koine Greek that was used when writing the New Testament in John's day, it's very, very precise. And this Koine Greek is much more precise than our modern-day English. And so when, they, when he uses the word sphazo, he's really saying something pretty specific. This word sphazo specifically tells us that Cain slaughtered, slew, or butchered his brother. The Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, uses this word to describe how the priests slaughtered the lambs in Leviticus for the Levitical sacrifices. They cut their throats, right? 
did Cain think, well, if God wants a blood sacrifice, we'll see how he likes this one as he reaches down and cuts his brother's throat, lets his blood drain into the ground. Is that what was going through his mind? I know it's a gruesome picture. Sin is gruesome. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? If you're wondering, the answer is yes, you are. And following the same pattern he demonstrated with Adam, God reaches out in love to the sinner. He questions Cain. He doesn't question him because he doesn't know where Abel is. It seems that God is giving space for Cain to confess this sin. And like his father, Cain refuses to confess. And instead, he lies to God in saying, I do not know. And then he smart mouths God by saying, am I my brother's keeper? Now, this is a good example of what not to do when confronting your sin. Verse 10, and he, that is God, said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. And of course, there are those passages in the New Testament that mention Abel's blood speaking things, and especially Hebrews 12.24, which we've already read. This is also the first usage of this word, blood, in Scripture. There's been hints at it before, but this is the first time it's actually specifically used. And verse 11, So now you are cursed from the earth, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you till the ground, it shall no longer yield its strength to you. A fugitive and a vagabond, you shall be on the earth. And so now God dispenses this curse on Cain. Before, Cain was able to make an eager, a meager living from working the land. He could eke a living out of the land even after God had cursed the ground through Adam. There was that ability to draw its fruits. But now the ground would not yield for Cain. And this could be a part of the reason that he became a nomad, just wandering around, possibly a scavenger, because he couldn't farm like he knew. A fugitive and a vagabond, you shall be on the earth. Now, you and I, if we're in Christ, we're not fugitives and vagabonds, but strangers and pilgrims in this world. I know that they all sound the same, but there are some really key differences between those four terms. A fugitive is running from home, and a vagabond has no home. However, a stranger is away from home and a pilgrim is headed home. So there's some difference there. We are not fugitives and vagabonds. We are strangers and pilgrims. If you are not in Christ, if you don't know Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, you are a fugitive. You're running from home, from where God has called you. And you're a vagabond. You have no home in this world. Nowhere to accept you. But if you are in Christ, you're a stranger. You're temporarily away from home. And you're a pilgrim. You're headed back home. Of course, as Christians, we have no home in this world. Our home is far beyond this world, and we look forward to that. Verse 13, And Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Surely you have driven me out this day from the face of the ground. I shall be hidden from your face. I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond on the earth. And it will happen that anyone who finds me will kill me. So instead of repentance, we see here that Cain is more worried about his punishment. My punishment 
is greater than I can bear. And the Lord said to him, Therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord set a mark on Cain, lest anyone finding him should kill him. We really have no idea what this mark entails. We don't really know what it is. Evidently, it's some kind of seal of protection for Cain. Some Hebrew scholars feel that it really says the Lord did a sign for Cain, meaning that the Lord performed some kind of sign to prove to Cain that he was under his protection. I don't know. Others feel that this was an actual visible physical mark that was placed on Cain somehow. And if this is the case, certainly we could draw a parallel with those 144,000 sealed servants of God that he protects through the tribulation. He set a mark on them. And to be honest with you, it seems strange at first that God would allow Cain to live and that he would protect him no less, especially in light of the rest of the Old Testament. It doesn't seem to match up because look, in Genesis 9-6, God institutes capital punishment. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. You know, in effect, an eye for an eye type of thing. If you kill someone, you'll be killed. Numbers 33-35 says, So you shall not pollute the land where you are. For blood defiles the land, and no atonement can be made for that land for the blood that is shed on it except by the blood of him who shed it. So the blood of the murderer was required to atone for that land that was soiled, essentially. So why did God allow Cain to go on living? Seems strange. Well, we don't know for sure, but the intimation seems to be this, that God was still allowing Cain space to repent. There was still that opportunity to come to God in the prescribed way. His time wasn't up. He could still turn back to God. And isn't God still so gracious? when we try to run from him. He doesn't say, oh, you're gone. There comes a point when he will, but not at first. You know, he brings us back to him. He's gracious. He gives us chance after chance, and I don't deserve all of the chances that I got. He keeps bringing us back. He gives us space to repent. Of course, we have to deal with the natural consequences of our sins, but he is so gracious to us. Look, the most obvious thing that God wants us to take from this passage is the need for that atoning sacrifice. Far and away, that's the most important thing that you can grab out of here. It's pointing to the blood that Christ would shed on our behalf. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 But there's something else here too. Here's these two boys that come from these genetically pure parents, direct creations of God. They grew up in the same household. They both only knew their own family. There wasn't even anybody else to influence them. It wasn't like Cain listened to gangster rap and Abel only listened to worship music. There were none of those influences yet. In many ways, this is the perfect case study on personal choice. And what it shows us is that each of us make that choice. And this is encouraging to me. You know, I hope that it's encouraging to you because you may come from an abusive home, just really awful parents. 
You may come from a terrible home life, and you can choose to come to God the way that he's prescribed through Jesus Christ, and you can look forward to an eternity with him. But you can come from the best family. You can be taught the Bible from a young age, grow up in church, and have the purest understanding of Christ and the gospel. And you can choose to go off and do your own thing, forsaking the way that God has made available to you. You can make that choice. And that's what... That's part of what makes us in God's image. We are free moral agents. He gave us a choice, and he lets us exercise choice. It doesn't matter where you come from or who you are. The stipulations were the same for both of these brothers. They both had to bring an animal, right place, right time, and offer it the way that was prescribed. The bar was set at the same height. And murder was the result of a long process of resentment and jealousy festering in Cain's heart. At least that's what it seems. Murder was the result, but it wasn't the root cause. James 1.15 says, Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin when it is full grown, brings forth death. If you have a brother or sister who you are feeling bitterness towards or who you know feels bitter towards you, you go to them and you see to it that those feelings are resolved. There's no room for that. I understand that sometimes they won't allow you to find that peace that you seek. Sure, I've seen it happen. But if it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Don't let that bitterness fester. You need to take care of it. And I'm not just talking about blood brothers and sisters. Because in Christ, we are all spiritual family. We're all brothers and sisters in Christ. And so take care of the things you need to take care of. And if you thought of somebody or some situation, that's probably the one you got to take care of. I know it's uncomfortable, but it it has to be done because you don't want those feelings to fester, to grow. You know, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Just a little bit in there. And the scripture also speaks of bitterness as springing up quickly. It doesn't take long for it to reach maturity. So please take that to God this week. Pray about that. See if there's anybody, any situation that needs to be remedied. Go to them and make things right. I heard this saying in marriage specifically was the context, but I think it can work other places too. I don't remember who it was, but they said that arguing is just you confessing each other's sins to each other. When really what we should be doing is approaching each other saying, I'm sorry for what I've done to contribute to this. Whereas when we argue, we just say, you sinned this way and you sinned this way. And that's not how we're supposed to approach each other. But that's the natural tendency, right? So take that into this week. Consider, pray about it, and see what the Lord would have you to do. I'll touch real quick, verse 16. Then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod on the east of Eden. He deliberately left the presence of the Lord. He withdrew himself from the presence of the Lord. That's what we don't want. I don't want that for you, and I know you don't want that for each other. We're going to close our study this morning there, and we'll pick up in verse 16 next time. It's a genealogy, and we'll probably get through chapter 5 next week too. But as far as genealogies go, it's a pretty interesting one. So come back, and we'll, we'll handle that. 
please bow your heads with me.